Just curious, how many of you have been here since we began this series in Hebrews? Just a show of hands, quite a number of you. You have endured, just like it says to do right here. Bear with this word of exhortation. You have done it. Hebrews is a book I have always desired to teach, but have been fearful to do so. It's a hard book. It's a challenging book. But now, 60 sermons later, beginning September 1st of 2019, finishing today, we bring to a conclusion a, a book that I, I think my own heart has been, been helped by and I pray yours has been as well. Who knew that when we began the book of Hebrews back in September of 2019, that, that difficult sub- subject that everybody wanted to know about Melchizedek, what happened during a coronavirus shutdown. I, I know there are some pastors who said, you preached Melchizedek during the shutdown? And I said, yeah, I just kind of kept going. Amen. Because I thought, amen, right? We looked into that really difficult section and kept seeing how unique Jesus was and whether or not we would actually stay tethered to him because of his uniqueness or whether or not we would fall to the fears of everything being turned upside down. How helpful that was in querying our souls as to whether we really thought Jesus was all sufficient. And as with any study of any book at any given time in a local church's life, none of us really knows the details of how God is going to use particular truths in our life with particular events that unfold through these seasons. You could probably look through your life and think about all of the different things that have happened over the past two years in your life and how the truth of God's word uniquely from the book of Hebrews has intersected with those issues. I can think through that. I can think through things that are personal and how Hebrews was helpful to me at these specific junctures, almost as if God knew, almost as if the the Lord in his kindness planned all of this. Could you imagine? Some people, quite a number of people communicated to me at the very beginning of this study that they were a little fearful of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is is filled with these austere warnings about apostasy. And it seems like a a book that is challenging because we believe significantly in eternal security. And yet there are these, these warnings to those who fall away. And it has for many people been a very fearful book. And yet I love hearing the testimonies of many people who came throughout the, the time that we've been studying it telling me how much they were rejoicing in the book because of how it presented Christ in all of his glory and sufficiency. Those warnings pushed us to Christ. They pushed us to see him for who he is and rely upon him. Hebrews has forced us to study the whole Bible. Have you noticed? All those ubiquitous quotations of the Old Testament have forced us to continually turn back to the pages of the Old Covenant and understand how those truths in that covenant actually point us to the ultimate fulfillment and completion of the entirety of the scripture. We've actually seen the completion of the Bible in the book of Hebrews. 
Hebrews has been helpful to all of us in a variety of ways that we could probably go on recounting all morning long. And it would be interesting just to have a service where we testified to what the ways God used his word in our lives. But maybe you could do that during your growth groups as well. When we began the book, we suggested that the overarching purpose of this book was an exhortation to help each other keep and not quit the faith. We keep and we don't quit the faith by looking to Jesus, that was chapters 1 through 10, and living for Jesus, chapters 11 through 13. And over the last seven weeks, we have been exposed to a series of persevering mandates in chapter 13, commands that will keep us in the faith, and even last week, a prayer of persevering dependence seeing what God is doing in our actions as we persevere. And essentially, all of these commands and this prayer has summarized how it is that we keep and we don't quit the Christian faith. And now we finish the book. And what does it emphasize? It actually emphasizes to us another critical element of perseverance, one that we have talked about a number of times as we've gone through this this book. If we've been looking at how to keep and not quit the faith through the first 21 verses of this chapter, this last chapter, here we see the final emphasis on how it is that we actually help each other keep and not quit the faith. We've learned a lot about how we should keep the faith, how we should not quit the faith. These last verses remind us how do we help each other do that. What appears to be a very casual and normal personal conclusion to the letter is actually a picture of the kind of fellowship that God uses to preserve us in the faith. What is involved in this kind of Christian camaraderie that helps each other keep and not quit the faith? That's what we want to look at in these final verses. Verses 22 to 25. I think they're a great illustration of at least four different pursuits, and that's where we want to turn our attention, four pursuits of the kind of fellowship that actually preserves us. Four pursuits within the kind of fellowship that preserves us in Christ, that will help us to persevere. That's what we'll look at this morning. Four pursuits within the kind of fellowship that actually perseveres in Christ. Let's look at the first one in verse 22. I love this one. Endure weighty sermons. How about that? (laughs) If you want to make it in the faith, endure weighty sermons. I didn't make that up. You act like I might have made that up. This is not just a verse for job security. It actually is in the text. Look carefully at verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, because I have written to you briefly. Relationships, I think, are critical to perseverance, but not just any kind of relationship. Relationships that are actually critical to your perseverance in the faith are the kind of relationships that are actually built on a shared fellowship over the word of God. You see the first word in this sentence. It is the word but. 
It's the same word that began the sentence in verse 20 that we looked at last week that was translated there as now. It's the normal little particle, Greek particle day that is translated sometimes as now, sometimes as and, but most often as but, as it is here in verse 22, but I urge you. And again, like in verse 20, it's not a strong contrast that we see here. It's just a a little taste of contrast, but you see it clearly if you put it together. Yes, pray for God to do his work in our works. That's verses 20 and 21. And at the same time, but as you pray, as you rely on God to do his work in our works, I urge you, bear with this word of exhortation. This brief word of encouragement. Trust God to do the work. And as you trust in him, endure my preaching. That's what he says. Endure my preaching. And he urges them. That's an important word, parakaleo, which is is used many, many times in the New Testament. Often translated as encourage. But it has a sense of authoritative urgency behind it. When you read this word, parakaleo, and you read it as encouraged, there is a sense of authority, there is a sense of urgency behind it. Exhort is the likely idea. Urge is a helpful term that we would likely understand behind this Greek word. And it's not the first time that the author of this letter has actually used this term. He used it in that all-consequential passage of chapter 3 and verse 13 when he said, we were called to encourage or urge one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's our calling is to encourage or urge or exhort each other all the time so that no one falls away. This word was also used in chapter 10, verse 25. Again, another familiar verse to you. We were called there in that chapter, in that verse, not to forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging or exhorting, urging one another and all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. That's a part of the Christian life is to exhort and encourage each other. It's what we do in this gathering. It's what the writer of this letter is doing at the very end of this book, urging, exhorting, encouraging us to do something. And what is it that he wants us to do? Bear with this word of exhortation. Bear with this word of exhortation. Now, you remember what leaders are supposed to do with their time and their energies. Leaders are supposed to give us the word of God and shepherd our souls through the word of God. We've seen that in chapter 13, verse 7. We need to remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And what do they do with that word of God that they speak to you? Verse 17, leaders whom we obey and we submit ourselves to, they keep watch over our souls. How? Through that exhortation, through the word of God, as they're teaching the scripture and speaking it to us, they're watching over our souls that we keep and not quit the faith. And this writer counts himself evidently as one of those leaders because he calls this letter 
a word of exhortation. It's very similar to the phrase you find in verse 7 about other leaders who spoke the word of God to us. Now here's the word of exhortation he has written very briefly. He's one of those leaders who's been watching over the souls of this congregation with his exhortation, with this word of God. He's been caring for their souls. That word exhortation, the word of exhortation is related to that very first word in, in this sentence, not but, but the word exhort or urge. It's related to that, paraclesis. It's an exhortation. It's an urgent plea. It's a message that is an exhortation. By the way, that's what a sermon is. It is a message that exhorts or urges you to do something with the word of God. That's what a sermon is. If you want to know the difference between preaching and teaching, that's probably it. It's a message that urges you to do something with the word. It doesn't just explain the word, doesn't just tell you what it means. It actually urges you to now to do something with it. It's what this is. It's a sermon. In fact, many commentators, as they write on the book of Hebrews, they note that this whole thing is put together in almost a sermonic form. If you were to go through and trace uh, all of this book, basically, what you have is a statement of ex- you have a statement made about God, about Christ. There's an appeal to the Old Testament normally, or an appeal to Scripture to back up that statement, and then it's followed almost every time by some kind of urging or exhortation. This is like a sermon, where you explain the truth. You show how it's connected to the word of God and then you urge people to do something with it, which is exactly how this letter would have been used in this church it is written to in the first century. Likely what would have happened is one of the leaders of the church would come to the pulpit or come to the place where they would stand in front of the entire congregation, take the letter out and begin to read it. And it would be like an exhortation, a word, a sermon from one who was a leader among them, urging them and exhorting them to do something with the word of God. You can see that here. Whoever the author of this book is, he knew this congregation personally. He had served them in person in the past for some unknown reason. He's not with them at this present time, but he's writing to them as if he was there. He's speaking to them in this letter as if he was among them. It's similar to a book that I'm reading with my men's discipleship group written by a pastor named John Flavel in the 1600s. He wrote a little book to his congregation that he could not legally assemble with because the government had disallowed non-registered pastors within the Church of England to live among or even preach to their congregations. In his book called Keeping the Heart, he writes an opening dedication to them. I want you to listen to the way he talks to this congregation that he's forbidden to meet with. He says, first, my relation to you is above all other people in the world. I look on my gifts as yours, my time as yours, and all the talents that I am entrusted with as yours. Our relationship still continues along with all the mutual duties of it. And second, in consideration of my necessary absence from you, I would not want my absence to untwist the cord of friendship. 
Therefore, as absent friends often do, I have endeavored to preserve and strengthen our bond by this small remembrance, meaning his book. I cannot say that my doors are open for the free access of friends. That's because he was disallowed to meet with any of them. But this I can say that my very breast is still open to you and you are as dear to me as ever. And third, I know few of you have such good memories to retain these truths and I cannot always be with you to teach these things, but the written word remains. I want to leave this with you as a legacy and a testimony of sincere love for and care over you. This may counsel and direct you when I cannot. I may be rendered useless to you by a civil or natural death, but this will outlive me. Oh, that it may serve your souls when I'm silent in the dust. What a great shepherd, huh? He can't be with them. He's not allowed to be there. But he'll leave something as if he's leaving his very heart with them, to care for them, to urge them on in the word of God. That's, that's the idea that you feel when the writer of Hebrews is finishing this book. Bear with this word of exhortation. And we're to bear with it. Literally, the word bear with means put up with it. Put up with it. Used in Matthew 17, 17, how long shall I put up with you? <laughs> how, will I, how long will I endure you? It means to tolerate. Put up with this sermon. That's what he's saying here. Put up with this little sermon I've written you. It's, it's actually the kind of response that we're all to have with each other in the congregation, isn't it? We're to put up with each other. It's what Colossians 3, 13 says, bearing with one another. That literally means putting up with each other. Enduring each other, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgive you, so also should you. You know what the writer's doing here? I think he's acknowledging Melchizedek is hard. That's hard stuff. This is tough sledding. All these Old Testament quotations, trying to understand and, and sled through all of this thick material, this weighty material. He's saying you need to bear with it. You need to endure in a helpful way with this entire treatise. That's what you need to do. Seeing Jesus and all the connections that he has to all the Old Testament and the system of priesthood that doesn't even really exist anymore and seems irrelevant to you, endure with that. You need this. It's all foundationally necessary for you to know, to meditate on, to think about until your soul is collectively saturated with all of these truths because they're the very truths that will keep you tethered to Jesus and not go away into something else or someone else. You've got to think on them and dwell on them and do the hard work in your heart and mind so that Christ becomes more precious to you. So you should bear with this sermon. And I think he says, you know what? I kept it shorter than it could have been. <laughs> you think this was hard and long, 13 chapters of all of this tough stuff to get through. I, I kept it pretty brief. You say, well, Pastor Brett, you did two years. I don't know if you kept it very brief. <laughs> I kept it shorter than it could have been. I mean, that was the challenge of walking through something like this that's really pulling the whole Old Testament into the new is what do you, what do you not say on Sunday? I've kept it short. 
That's a tool in the box of Christian fellowship that God uses to keep you in the faith. Our fellowship actually needs, our fellowship actually requires weighty biblical sermons. What we don't need is something that makes so little contribution to what we already understand about Christianity that we feel no need to think about or discuss it any further. If you come and you are engaged in the word of God in such a way that you think, I need to think about this a little more. I need to study that more deeply. I need to talk with people about that. That's good. If you come and what is given to you is nothing more than platitudes that you've already heard and had and affirm, and you feel no need to really go out and engage in conversation with it, with anyone else, that when you see them, it's not the sermon that you're probably going to talk about. It's something else more interesting, something more significant, something more weighty. Then what role has the Bible actually played in your fellowship? I think that's the idea here. Bear with this. Let this resonate among you. Or as we said at the very beginning of this year, one of the reasons that we gather is so the word is not just preached, but so that the word might reverberate among us in our fellowship. This is how we engage in Christian fellowship. We talk over the word, the weighty word that we've been looking to understand. Not every sermon that's preached is easy to understand. It may feel at times that the content of the text might be irrelevant to your situation. But did did you ever stop to think that God doesn't intend for me to come in here and every single Sunday that the pastor has to speak to something relevant to my personal life situation. But that maybe what God intended is to speak to something that's relevant to someone sitting beside you. It's relevant to someone that you might engage this week in conversation. And that you need to hear this, not just so that you are personally convicted, but that you might take truth and say, I need to invest that in another this week. I could come alongside others and help them with this. Think about that Puritan pastor, John Flavel, that I quoted from just a moment ago. He was a pastor who was radically devoted to delivering significant sermons to his flock. When those non-Anglican pastors and preachers were exiled from their pulpits and their towns and forbidden to preach, John Flavel would secretly get together small groups of the church to preach to. And he would meet secretly with these small gatherings in the woods and at all times during the day, sometimes at midnight at night, One writer even said once he even disguised himself as a woman on horseback in order to reach a secret meeting place where he preached and administered baptism. That's radical, friends, I think. (laughs) And God used his preaching even beyond his own lifetime. Robert Murray McShane tells about an American immigrant, Luke Short, who remembered listening to Flavel preach in England when he was 15 years old. 85 years after hearing Flavel preach on the horror of dying under God's curse, the Spirit of God effectually converted him at the age of 100 as he meditated on that sermon. Wouldn't you love to know that a sermon you probably went home and thought that was flat actually saved somebody 100 years later or 85 years later? Never underestimate the lingering power of the scriptures that are regularly preached and exposed and expounded upon. What I find 
really fascinating about John Flavel and his preaching and the lengths to which he would go is not merely that he was just so devoted to preaching, though that is remarkable. I'm not sure I would want to dress up like a woman on horseback. Maybe you're worth it. I, I don't know. Would, would we do that? That's not what impresses me so much. What impresses me so much is that he had a congregation who was dying to hear it. That they would meet at all hours of the day and the night, in the middle of nowhere, secretly, to hear the word preached. Do you think it's that important? Do you think it's that important? Do you think that your spiritual vitality is connected to the regularity of gathering to hear God's word? Do you think that someone's staying in the faith could be connected to our fellowship over what has been preached? Have you ever thought through that? When was the last time that you not only felt convicted in your soul that you should have a sit-down conversation with a fellow member regarding something that had been preached on a given Lord's Day and you actually acted on it and did it? You met with them, you talked with them, you urged them. Are you actually welcome to that kind of involvement in your own life? Would you welcome it? That kind of conversation and involvement over what has been preached? Because God saves, God keeps saved and brings to glory his people through the preaching of his word. That's why he's urging them as one of the last things he says in this letter, I urge you, bear with this word of exhortation. Bear with it. It will keep you in the faith. Let this be what rings among all of you. It's the plural you here, the all y'all of the Greek. All of you. This is what reverberates in your fellowship. Endure weighty sermons. God will use it to preserve you, for you to persevere in the faith. There's a second pursuit within the kind of fellowship that perseveres that we see in verse 23. Secondly, expect personal involvement. Expect personal involvement. Verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. Preaching is essential, but preaching is not all sufficient in sustaining God's people. You need to think through that. Preaching is essential, but it's not all sufficient in sustaining God's people. Personal work is needed as well. And not merely time spent together, but time spent together in personal ministry, individual, small group, in-person kinds of ministry. A letter won't do it all. A video is insufficient. Texting is too far removed to be adequately substantive for our soul. We need face-to-face time, in-person ministry. And I think that's the example given to us in verse 23. There's an urging here, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released. This is almost as an aside. It's not the main emphasis of the, the verse. It is somewhat interesting and instructive. Our assumption is that this Timothy, who is being referred to as the same one who served along the, alongside the Apostle Paul, 
the one who was converted under Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 16, the one Paul said that was a unique brother who was closer to his soul, a kindred spirit to his soul, unlike anyone other in his life and ministry. It's the one that Paul relied upon significantly to carry out weighty kinds of ministry in churches like Ephesus, from which we get the, the book of First Timothy that we're studying on Sunday evenings. This is the Timothy that Paul wanted by his side in the very last days of his life. Come to me, come to me quickly, because he knew he was going to die. Now, evidently, from what we learn here, Timothy has been imprisoned. We get that from the word that he's been released. Gives us a little bit of an idea into the timing of this book. This book was likely written before AD 70 because it's likely that the priesthood and the temple system was still somewhat going in Jerusalem from what we learned earlier in the book. There's no mention of the Apostle Paul in the book. He doesn't mention himself if he were the author here. And Timothy takes more of a prominent role at the end of this book. He seems to be someone more significant to rely upon, which leads this leads us to think that this could have been written sometime after Paul's death in the early 60s AD. Persecution has begun to break out against the church, but martyrdom is not a regular threat. We learned that in chapter 12. Not, you have not yet sh- suffered to the point of shedding of blood. So there is some persecution breaking out and likely soon after Paul's martyrdom, it's increasing in intensity and Timothy was likely arrested as a part of that, but he's now been released. And from what we learn here, Timothy is likely to come see this congregation. Take notice that our brother, Timothy, has been released with whom... If he comes soon, and we take that to mean either he's coming to where the author is and they're going to come see them, or he's going to make straightway to the church and they'll all see them together, Timothy's coming to them. He's making his way. It could be that Timothy was a leader in this church at some point in time. But the emphasis of this verse is not on Timothy so much. It's good to know that he's been released. He's likely a leader and The real emphasis is with whom, if he comes soon, if he comes in any short order, I will see you. That's actually the emphasis of this verse. I will see you. Timothy and I are coming. And I'm going to see you perhaps with him. Two leaders are coming. And they want to be with them in person. That's actually the emphasis here. He's written this book with an urgency about their faith, has he not? He has written this book pleading with them to watch over each other so that no one is left behind. No one leaves the faith. And what he longs for is not just to hear reports somewhere from someone else. He wants to see them face to face. This letter is predicated upon a significant in-person relationship. What do you think he wants to see in them when he gets together? He wants to know, are you, are you following through on what I wrote you? Are, you? are you really living out these truths? Are you watching over each other? Are you involved with each other? Are you prizing Christ? Are you celebrating him? Are you seeing him in the midst of all the pressures to deny him? Are you calling each other to see how 
significant Christ is? It's almost as if he's speaking as a leader who feels an accountability to God over the care for these souls. As he mentioned in verse 17. We know he wants to be there. He's told them, pray for me to get there. Verse 19, I urge you all the more to do this. To do what? To pray for me to come see you so that I may be restored to you. I belong with you. A letter was all that was possible at this point in time though. But a letter wasn't completely sufficient in the ministry of preserving them. This sermonically delivered letter was helpful, but personal ministry among them would be equally important to invest in their shaky spiritual situation. I think about this all the time because I I know the weight of pastoral ministry. I know that what it takes to come up here and open the Bible and explain the Bible accurately, accurately requires copious amounts of private preparation time and studying the scriptures, praying for the flock, reading theological and practical material just to come and give one sermon, let alone teach again in other settings and venues. But pastoral ministry, we know, is not effectively conducted merely in the study It's not effective merely in its conduct in the pulpit or in a classroom, but in the home and in the coffee shop and in the restaurant or wherever it is that a shepherd, an elder, can encourage in regular personal investment of all that he's been studying and pouring it into the lives of the people that he's watching over. What you don't want pastors to do is be preoccupied with event planning, program development. And that that's what our elders do. They just kind of plan the next event. What we know elders are called to do is to care for the souls of the flock through the word of God. That's what we're called to do. I mean, the scripture never really calls us to do any other event other than meet together on the Lord's day and hear the word and sing together and pray together and then fellowship over that. It's really fairly simple. Counseling, discipling, teaching, preaching, personal prayer, group prayer, small group ministry, one-on-one, having people in, in our homes. All of these comprise the personal investment of an elder. And I, I want you to think about this. The effectiveness of the letter is bolstered by the already significant nature of his personal relationship with these people. We, we live in a very interesting time, I think. I know letter writing was, was popular in days gone by and it was really an art and a craft and I love getting a, a volume of letters written by significant saints of the past and see how they wrote to people. Uh, I, I Just last year I finished reading a volume of John Newton's letters. Personal correspondence is really instructive, very helpful to see, but even those letters... You read them and you think the letter is insufficient and the letter is predicated upon a relationship that already existed, that was in person. What an interesting time we live in though, right? I can send a text to my parents who live hundreds of miles away from here or in-laws or extended family who are more than a thousand miles from here. We can have a video call with a missionary who's serving in another part of the world 
We're even live streaming the service this morning. And I know that there are people who are benefiting from that because they can't be here among us this morning and how thankful we are for that. We live now in the Zoom era, don't we? Where classes can be taught and counseling can be conducted and meetings are held all from the comfort of your home. You can watch the service in your PJs. That thought disturbs me at times. That's great. So many more are able to work and do their job from their home. I mean, it's a new era, isn't it? It's really fascinating. But we also live in a time when people live with significant anxiety issues. If they can't figure out and they can't see and they can't know what the latest zany pose of one of their friends just snapped about. We actually get worried. (gasps) Did they post something? Did they say something? I have to know, I have to know, I have to know. We actually now define online relationships as friendships. And churches are even today redefining the meaning of the word church as a gathering by means of a monitor. So we need to make no mistake, virtual friendships can be fun, but they, if they stay that way, they're not going to be really significant. Virtual church may be momentarily helpful, but it's not the church. Letters are good and videos are helpful. Texts can be profitable and all these can serve temporarily meaning, meaningful functions. But likely with relationships that began in person, that's when they'll be meaningful. Relationships that long to be in person. None of these other means are ever going to replace the value of meeting together in person to see each other. Personal relationships are what actually make all those little ancillary connections more effective. But I can hear someone say, but we don't even know the writer of this book. We don't even know who the writer, the author of the book of Hebrews is. And it's significant in my life. And I would say, yes, it probably is significant in your life. Not because you know who the author of this book is, humanly speaking, but you likely have a personal relationship with the spiritual author who wrote it. That's what makes this book significant, isn't it? I mean, after all, those who don't trust in Christ and don't believe in Christ can read the book of Hebrews and they have no personal connection to this. We read it and we think our life depends on this. And reading Hebrews is not sufficient for me either. I actually want to see the Lord face to face, don't you? I want to see him as I read this. This book talks about being completed in Christ and I want that day to come. So don't just leave me with Hebrews. I want what it's pointing to, don't you? That's a bit of what we're seeing in this author. I've written you this book. I want you to bear with it, but I want to see you. I want to be with you, in person with you. Let the significance of your relationships be built upon a significant, personally involved relationship. It's also worth asking whether or not we really want that kind of personal ministry. If the elders ask you, how can we be praying for you? Do you ever think, I don't need them praying for me? 
I pray, I read my Bible. I really don't need that kind of personal relationship. You're going through a challenge, a difficulty, and you're thinking, I really don't need the involvement of someone else. I really don't want them to know what's going on. That's the challenge here. I think this writer was so concerned about the souls of these people, it was not enough just to write them a letter of urgency. He wants to be there with them in their in their midst. That's why I encourage you to be involved in smaller group ministries and personal discipleship and involvement with one another that's in person. Not just on the ancillary edges of the church and you come and you sit on a Sunday and you have some pleasantries and then you leave and really have nothing to do with the congregation the rest of the week. I just need to hear a sermon. I don't really need to do anything with it with anyone. That sets people up for spiritual failure, for people to walk away. Avail yourself to the insightful watch care of shepherds and the congregation personally. Our souls need that. It's the kind of fellowship, it's a pursuit within fellowship that will actually help us persevere. It's personal ministry. Let's look at a third pursuit within the kind of fellowship that perseveres our faith. A third pursuit, verse 24 Embrace all the saints. Embrace all the saints. This is a wonderful little verse at the end. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints and those from Italy greet you. I know some of you are thinking, how in the world are you going to do anything with this verse? You're going to make stuff up here now. I mean, this is just the end of the book. Just greet people. Goodbye. (laughs) It's not. It's not. Now, it's not uncommon for a writer of the New Testament letter to conclude this way, exhorting the, the readers to exhort each other. Romans 16 is filled with more than 20 exhortations to greet various saints. Paul is infamous for his, his exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss. You remember that? You say, oh, I'm so glad we're not in the first century anymore. We just greet one another with a holy handshake. Peter and John also call for similar greetings. It's common. But do you you ever stop and think, what's called for in a greeting? Why, Why call for people? Why even say this? Why call for people to actually greet one another? Isn't it self evident that people will just do that when they see each other? I mean, what are they going to do? Just move along and not say anything and sit in the pew and not talk to anybody? (laughs) I don't know. Perhaps. What does a personal greeting do? You don't have to think about that too much to know, do you? Because how do you feel when someone looks you in the eye and doesn't greet you? It makes a statement, doesn't it? It makes a statement. What tends to pop into your mind when someone will not even look you in the eye to greet you? you. (laughs) That could be it. Someone feels that here. We need to make sure that they're greeted today. So everybody know who that is and greet them. Welcome them. 
Greeting or not greeting tends to signify something. It signifies an affirmation of a relationship or a non-affirmation. It signifies affection for someone, enjoyment of the individual being greeted, acceptance of that person. If you don't affirm, you don't accept, and you don't have affection for or enjoy someone, you likely don't greet them. If you don't accept them, if you have little interest in them, you move along by them. But if you do feel warm affection and investment and connection to them, you, you greet them. To greet is to affirm, to embrace someone as a fellow heir of the gospel, isn't it? Well, notice who he calls the church to greet. First, he, exalt, he encourages the church to greet the saints who are leading us. The saints who are, or the, the saints who are leading us, your leaders. Greet all of your leaders. Now, what's interesting here, this is the third time in this chapter that he has mentioned leaders. The third time. Verse 7, verse 17, and here in this verse, verse 24. You have to wonder, is there some problem among the leaders? Is there some desire for some to move away and not affirm those leaders? They don't want to hear those leaders teach the word. We don't know, really, but he's urging them a third time, greet all of your leaders. To greet those leaders is to affirm their ministry. To greet those leaders is to affirm their ministry in your life. To greet leaders is to welcome their personal involvement in your life. In a way, it's it's a way for the church to say, we need your investment in us. We want the word preached. We value the word preached. That's why we engage personally those who lead us. And do you notice, it's not some of your leaders, it's all of your leaders. Greet all of your leaders. Not just the ones that you prefer above the others, but all of them. Respect them, embrace them, affirm them. And just a footnote, it seems like there's a plurality of leaders in this congregation, right? It's not just one pastor. There's a plurality of shepherds in this church, which is the norm in the New Testament. It should be the norm in our churches. That's why we have a plurality of elders who all shepherd the flock. So we greet the saints who are leading us. We also greet the saints who are among us. That's where he goes next. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. And I think he means the saints who are in their midst because he refers to other saints who are outside the church who are bringing greeting to them specifically. So this is likely referring to the saints who are among you. Likely the same people that Christ is interceding for right now. The same people that this congregation was called to exhort day after day as long as it's still called today. Lest any one of them be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Likely these are the same saints that were called to assemble together and not forsake that assembly. And to think about how you could stimulate all of those saints to love and good deeds. Those saints, greet them. Greet them. Affirm them. Speak to them. Welcome them. Embrace them. Don't ignore them. Involve yourself with them. There's a third group. You greet not only the leaders, the saints who are leading us, the saints among us. Third, the saints who are beyond us. He even says those in Italy greet you. What does this mean? And this is odd because he now, he, he doesn't mention a city. He mentions an entire region, a, a country. Those in Italy greet you. Well, likely it is that the writer 
is in another location outside of Italy, and this church is likely a church in the city of Rome from what we can gather somewhere in Italy. And so the writer's somewhere else outside of Italy, and he's making mention that where he is, others of Italian descent are sending their greetings to this likely Italian church. It's not a little mob connection here. I think it's just them saying there are people of the same descent who are greeting you in the Lord, people from the outside of your fellowship who have relationship with you and connection to you are sending greeting to you. And the implication is you should welcome that and you should send like greetings to them because there are believers in other locations, in other regions, in other places of the world with whom we have significant fellowship and relationship. There could be some of the members of this congregation that have been sent out to other congregations. And the writer of of this letter would be urging us, if that was true, we've sent people out. Greet them. They're sending greeting to you. Much like we hope to do with Trevor and Maria. As we send them out to another congregation, hopefully they'll write us a letter and say, we send you greetings. Well, they have to. Maria's parents are here, you know. But perhaps it goes further than that, doesn't it? There's significant relationship that's maintained even though there's distance. Whoever's in Christ, whatever role of ministry they're playing in our life, we're called to affirm them as brothers and sisters, leaders, shepherds within our greeting. Other missionaries who've been among us and have talked about their ministry, how are we sending greetings to them and they to us? It implies a relationship. It implies an embracing of the saints that God brings into our sphere of influence. All of this greeting, I think, also implies that there could be some who are falling away from the faith. And what would be a significant investment that perhaps would assist them other than to personally greet them and welcome them? And show your affirmation of them. An intentional embrace of all the saints. That's a vital piece in the kind of fellowship that preserves faith. That perseveres in the faith. Let's finish with a fourth pursuit of the kind of fellowship that perseveres. Fourth, entreat God's favor. Entreat God's favor. You see it in verse 25? It's a prayer. Grace be with you all. What a simple statement. Grace be with you all. Maybe it's just a customary closing, but I don't think that's how the Holy Spirit uses words. There are no throwaway terms in Scripture. Grace be with you all. In relationship to fellowship with each other, it's a reminder that for fellowship to be effective in preserving people and people persevering in the faith, it must be a kind of fellowship that is fueled by the grace of God, the favor of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. But I think this concluding comment is not merely a first century customary way of saying yours truly. It's a prayer, it's a closing plea, and it's not just a closing plea for 
the few verses that we've been looking at this morning. It's really a closing plea for everything in this book. Every time you come across one of these grace be with you all statements at the end of a letter, it's the author saying, I am praying that God takes everything that I've been teaching you from the beginning to the end. And I am praying that God's favor rests over this in your life. May God's favor, his grace, his undeserved kindness prove effective in the application of these truths among you all. Again, it's the all y'all, right? It's the, the whole of you, the congregation. I want you to embrace these truths and I'm praying that God will accomplish it. That's how we conduct ourselves in fellowship with each other. We're not just engaging in in personal ministry, in the preached ministry, and greeting one another, it's also in praying that God's grace makes our relationships spiritually effective. And it requires that. I've said this many times, and, and we all know this to be true. There is likely no other reason outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would actually know each other. I mean, some of you, your family... Some of you are. But what would actually cause my relationship and your relationship to happen if it were not the gospel? There are very few other just normal, natural connections, perhaps. And so what will preserve us together? What preserves that bond? The gospel brought us together. We need to pray that the grace of God through the gospel is effective among us to keep us together. That's what it takes. Because as you know, fellowship is easily disrupted because you're going to offend someone at some point in time in the church. You're going to be offended by someone at some point in the church. It's going to happen. It's what happens when sinful people get close to one another. Not enough will be done. Too much will be tried to be done. And there'll be some offense. And what actually is required is for God's favor and his grace to rest over us so that we don't leave one another. Leaving one another could lead us to eventually leave Christ. So grace be with you all. What a marvelous time we've had studying this book, how to help each other keep and not quit the faith. May the grace of God be with all of us in that. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you.